All right, we are uh, today finishing up our series on the life of Abraham, which is pretty exciting. Those of you who have hung with us through beginning uh, to end, and uh, we're, we're making our way towards that final, uh, final end to uh, the series. Uh, we came last week to the fulfillment of God's promise with the birth of Isaac, the laughter, the great celebration that marked that occasion. And this was a huge moment in Abraham's faith journey when he gets to see all of God's good promises coming to fruition, right? These are sweet moments in our faith journey when we climb out of the valley of shadow for a moment and get a panoramic view of what God is doing in our lives, right? And these are moments we need to celebrate, right? And I'm convinced we don't celebrate enough. We don't laugh enough. We don't rejoice at the goodness of God enough when we come to one of those beautiful moments, those vistas, when it all comes together. It seems like God is fulfilling his promises and everything is working. But right on the heels of Abraham's greatest celebration comes Abraham's greatest test. Abraham has been in the school of faith for 25 years now. He's He's been through primary school, he's been through middle school, high school, college, and today he gets his graduate exam in the school of faith. Uh, For the medical people in the room, this is his opportunity to pass his boards, right? Uh, This is his opportunity to pass the bar exam, your CPA exam, whatever your uh, exam of choice might be. Uh, This is where Abraham is at. This is going to be the greatest test of faith in this patriarch's life. And you're a Christian here this morning. We are also enrolled in the school of faith. Some of us are pretty new to our faith journey, and some of us have been at it for a while. And I hope this series has helped you see that God uses the everyday stuff of life to strengthen and test our faith, right? Those everyday circumstances, situations that we think, right, are driving us nuts, that that fact that you can't have a child, in this case, one of the driving elements in the story, struggling to find a job, your calling, your career, your relationship, whatever it might be, right? God uses those ordinary circumstances in our lives to strengthen and test our faith, to grow us, to mature us, right? Our lives are God's custom curriculum for growing us into the people he wants us to be. God has you right where he wants you this morning uh, and has you where he wants you to grow in uh, the next steps that he has for you in faith. Uh, But there comes a point in all of our lives, right, where uh, in all of our faith journeys where our faith is tested, right, where we come to that point where nothing seems to make sense, where all the things God seems to have promised to us Uh, don't seem to be panning out, don't seem to be working out. In fact, it could be exactly the opposite. So the big question for this morning that we're going to be wrestling with is how do we respond when our faith is tested? How do we respond when our faith is tested? To answer that question, I want to look this morning at the test of faith in verses 1 and 2. I want to look at the faith in action in verses 3 through 10 and then the foundation for faith in verses 11 through 18. And my aim for this morning's sermon is that we would be enabled to walk by faith like Abraham when we're confronted with our own tests of faith. And so let me pray as we dive into God's word this morning. Father, none of us wants to go through a test of faith like Abraham goes through in our text this morning, and yet sometimes you take away things that are precious to us 
for your own good purposes. And pray that you would prepare us this morning for those tests of faith. And when we pass those tests, God, would you get all the glory. And when we fail at those tests, uh, would your grace beckon us back home this morning. And so uh, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start by looking at the test of faith in verses 1 through 2. So Genesis 22, um, right out of the bat in verses 1 and 2, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And, and then here's the test. In, he says, here I am. And he says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains in which I shall tell you. And so shockingly, God tells Abraham to sacrifice his only son, the child of the promise, the child he loves as a burnt offering. Now, immediately, um, this raises all kinds of ethical questions in our mind. This is what kind of crazy cosmic child abuse is this, right? Why would God make such a horrible request, especially because he later explicitly forbids the Israelites to offer child sacrifice on pain of death? You can look at texts like Leviticus 20, 1 through 5. Clearly, God is not okay with child sacrifice. That is a very twisted, uh, detestable practice. But here, God uses this abhorrent practice so common among Abraham's contemporaries as a graduate level test in the school of faith. And what would otherwise be a positively immoral command also foreshadows something at the very heart of the Christian gospel. So if you're struggling with this whole thing, right, stick, stick with me until the end and see what God is doing here in this greatest test of faith in Abraham's life. So the test is striking in its directness, first of all, right? Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, right? Abraham has been waiting his whole life for this child, right? And finally, at the age of 100, the child of the promise arrived. God's promise finally comes to fruition. It's interesting, he says his only son, because he's like, what about Ishmael? He's got another son, but according to the promise, according to the God's promises in his life, right, Ishmael doesn't count. He's not the child of the promise. He's not part of this descendant of Abraham. He's not part of this lineage of redemption that God is doing in the world. Uh, Isaac is his son, his only son, the one through all whom all God's promises are going to be revealed. And it's clear Abraham loves this son dearly. He grasps what God is doing, that this is finally the child of the promise. And yet God asks Abraham to give him back to God as a burnt offering. This child who's going to fulfill all of God's promises to bring God's blessings to all the families of the earth. What is going on here? What is God doing? Right? We know from verse 1 that God is testing him, but what's the test? I mean, what kind of a test is this? I mean, it's just hard to even think about as a parent right? in your mind. It's just kind of like crazy. God is testing whether this child has become more important than God himself, right? We know Abraham loves this child, a perfectly natural thing, but does he love this child of the promise more than the God of the promise? Does he love the gift more than the giver? And we might ask, why does that even matter, right? Do we really have to choose here? Here's the problem, right? Anything that becomes more important than God, anything that we love more than him, 
will subtly twist, distort, and ultimately poison our love. You see, if we put something above God, if we elevate something above God, uh, not only can we not love that thing the way we're supposed to love it, that love becomes twisted, it becomes distorted, it becomes poisoned. Uh, Let me give you an illustration of this. Uh, No one captured this better than C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce, which I had the pleasure of seeing live just a few weeks ago. But there is this heartbreaking scene in the book where there's a mother who is in hell, because that's where the scene is kind of set. It starts out in hell because she loves her son more than she loves God, and she can't forgive God for taking him away from her. So you have this mother who is just angry at God, but her whole life has been wrapped up around this child and loving this child so much so that there's no room for love for God in her life. Her fierce love for her son is positively keeping her from God himself. She would rather have her child all to herself in hell than share him in heaven. That's what it's kind of come to. And she makes a hell on earth for her whole family by smothering this child. And she's clearly in this unhealthy, codependent relationship with a child. And then when she loses him, she makes a hell on earth for the rest of the family by never letting him go, leaving his room set up for the rest of his life just the way it was, fantasizing about him being there. It's this love gone twisted and disordered. It's, it's love run amok. And that angel in the story is trying to realign this mother's love so that she can love God first and then her son in a healthy, non-codependent fashion. But she's having none of it. She sees God as competition for her son's affection and it's a zero-sum game. Either God gets her son or she gets her son. She's unable to see that loving God would actually help enhance, enrich, and expand her love for her son and for the rest of the family. But, but this love has become twisted, and it's become twisted around this child. So it's not healthy for her. It's not healthy for the child. It's not healthy for the rest of the family. And why do I share this story? Uh, because there are loves in all of us that will kill us if they aren't properly ordered, if they aren't properly subordinated to God. And that's why God sometimes tests us around these very issues. This isn't the only reason that God tests us. There are plenty of others as well. Uh, But it's certainly one of them. It seems to be the case here, right? Abraham saying, take your son, the son whom you love. And God recognizes and acknowledges, right, that Abraham loves his son. How right, how appropriate Uh, But God wants to make sure that that love is properly ordered, properly in its place under his relationship with God. God God does this testing. We see this in other places in the New Testament. Back in our James series, James 1.12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, right, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. God God has a way of testing us. Or in 1 Peter 4.12 through 13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. God uses circumstances in our life, situations to test us and grow us. So how does Abraham respond to this test of faith? It's striking that Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two young men, took his son Isaac, and the supplies they needed. We see this in verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took his two, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering, arose, and went to the place which God had for him. Right? So no delay, no hesitation, no hand re- 
hand-wringing, just like Genesis 21, when God told Abraham to go, Abraham went. It's the exact same Hebrew phrase, lech lecha. Once again, God called him to go, and he goes. He takes out onto this step of faith, this journey of faith. And it makes, in this case, a three-day journey. God calls him to go to the land of Moriah, uh, or, not, or to the mountain, or Mount Moriah, uh, in modern-day Jerusalem, um, which we see from Second Chronicles 3, uh, 1. And so he's got a three-day journey to go to Mount Moriah to offer this sacrifice. Plenty of time for Abraham to think about um, the promises that God has made, how this child is going to bless all the families and all the nations of the earth, and the fact that God has now told him to sacrifice this very child of the promise. Uh, But it's interesting as we pick up the story here, Abraham's word. Then Abraham said to his young man, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Uh, It's fascinating here if we look very strictly at this text here. What is Abraham doing here, right? We know the narrator has already let us in on the secret, right? Abraham is planning to go and sacrifice his son. But here in verse 5, Abraham says to these young men, stay with the donkey. I and the boy We'll go over there, worship, and come again to you. Uh, what's he saying here? Is he just kind of lying to the guys, saying, hey, look, we're going to come back, just deceiving them? Or does Abraham have faith that God is going to bring himself and Isaac back from this sacrifice? There's all this tension in the story. We're wondering, what is Abraham saying? Is he, is he just deceiving these guys, or is he speaking truer than he knows The story continues in verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took it in his hand, the fire and the knife. So they both went on together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. It's striking language here as we go forward. And if you're familiar with the story of the New Testament here, uh, there's some striking foreshadowing moments in here. Uh, Abraham taking the wood of the burnt offering and laying it on his son Isaac would remind us of another son who would carry another piece of wood up another hill outside of Jerusalem, right? As we think through uh, the story, but there's another startling moment in the story as Isaac, this young boy, is heading up the sacrifice and he says, we've got the fire, we've got the wood, but where's the sacrifice? And once again, we don't know, is Abraham just kind of pacifying his son? You know, God will provide the sacrifice. Don't worry about it. Is he just kind of trying to deceive him? Or again, is there faith going on in his story? Does Abraham believe God will ultimately provide a sacrifice? God will ultimately provide a way. We're wondering, right? We're in tension here because the narrator has told us Abraham's intentions is to kill The boy, and yet Abraham is able to declare by faith God Himself will provide the lamb. And so when they finally arrive at Mount Moriah, Abraham builds the altar, he places Abraham on it, and prepares to kill him. We see this in verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham. Hold up, I'm lost my place here. In verse 13, I'm in verse 9. When they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood on it in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter 
his son. And so here we are on the very cusp of what would be uh, the unthinkable, right? Abraham sacrificing his only son. What is Abraham thinking during this process, right? All of this tension building up to this moment is Abraham going to kill his only son, the son of the promise. We don't have to guess because the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19 that by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You see, Abraham was somehow able to trust God with his beloved son. He believed that God could bring him back from the dead if necessary to keep his promise. And so Abraham is wrestling here in faith with what is the unthinkable, with the unfathomable request to sacrifice his son his only son. And yet we see Abraham rising to the test, rising to the challenge of faith. Here is a man, right, who's willing to follow God right to the very end. And what does this test teach us about trusting God? Uh, I think it teaches at least one thing pretty clearly, right? Faith becomes real when it's tested, right? It's easy to say we believe in God and we trust God when life is just kind of cruising along and everything seems to be running smoothly and there's no challenges, there's no difficulties. God hasn't asked us to give up anything or sacrifice anything or deal with any great challenges. Uh, But boy, once we come to one of these great tests in our lives, one of these great forks in the road, God has taken something we love from us or hasn't given us something we really want and desire, right? That's where the journey of faith actually begins, right? That's where we are actually tested, right? The, the metaphor I've been using throughout this series is that of the chair, right? We, we only really know whether the chair will hold us once we actually sit in it. And that's where Abraham finds himself today with this massive challenge of faith, right? An opportunity to trust God with his son, his only son. Tests reveal, right, the extent of our faith. Tests offer us a fork in, our, fork in the road. Will we grow in our faith? Or will we stumble in our faith? You know, as these opportunities come into our path, there are opportunities for us to grow, to actually exercise that faith that we have. So finally, I want to ask the million-dollar question, why is Abraham able to trust God this completely? Why is God able to trust God with his only son, the son in whom he loves? I want to close by looking at the foundation of our faith in verses 11 through 14. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withhold your son your only son for me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And so we draw a sigh of relief in verse 11. And the angel of the Lord, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, for those of you who are interested, 
puts a decisive stop to this grisly affair. We're all relieved that the child of the promise has not been killed. The test is over, and Abraham has passed with flying covers. He has demonstrated that he fears God, verse 12. Now, fearing God is not like a terror of God or some kind of like, you know, overwhelming, you know, horror that we might talk about. Fearing God is really uh, faith in the Old Testament, right? Fearing The fear of the Lord is, a, is as central to the Old Testament as faith is in the New, right? Fearing God is to have awe, reverence, respect for God. It is the Old Testament language of faith. So Abraham fearing God is trusting God. It's exercising that faith in God. Uh, but God doesn't simply stop him from killing his son. God also provides a substitute. He provides a sacrifice. God could have said, uh, good job, Abraham, you passed the test. Now uh, head home to Sarah, because I'm sure she's worried sick about you too and wondering what on earth is going on out there? What's going on with this little sacrifice? But God does something far more significant here in our text. He provides a substitute, a sacrifice, something that is central to the storyline of Scripture. God is not simply teaching Abraham to put, his, put him first, but showing how God can be faithful even when Abraham is faithless. At the height of Abraham's obedience, God makes provision for his weakness and failure for the times he's not able to trust him, for the times he fails to obey, and for all the times he loves other things, like safety, which we've seen numerous times, more than God himself. It's striking that in Abraham's greatest moment of strength, God is going to provide for his moments of greatest weakness by providing a sacrifice, by providing a substitute for him. And of course, this sacrifice ultimately points us to another mountain where another beloved son would be sacrificed in our place for our sins by another loving father. The commentator Derek Kidner uh, describes it this way. I thought this was beautiful. He said, so Abraham is enabled in the surrender of his son to mirror God's still greater love while his, and while his faith gives him a first glimpse of resurrection. See, Abraham's sacrificial giving of his only son powerfully foreshadows God's own generous gift of his son. Uh, We have some beautiful texts like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Or Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Um, Kidner also notes the striking parallels with Isaac. He says, Isaac, to, Isaac to, comes briefly into his own, not by what he does, but by what he suffers. Here it seems is his role, undistinguished though he may be in himself. Others will do exploits. It is left to this quiet victim in a single episode to demonstrate God's pattern for the chosen seed to be a servant sacrificed. Isaac is going to foreshadow the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and Christ himself, the one who would lay down his life in his place for our sins. You see, it's God's love lavishly displayed at the cross of Christ that's designed to break the power of all of our lesser loves, to recalibrate our loves, to make sure we have properly ordered loves, love for Christ and his kingdom first and every other love in its proper place. That's what God is doing at the cross. He's, he's trying to win our hearts, to melt our hearts with his love 
um, so that we move to a greater love for him and a love that would actually then put all of those other loves in their place. And Jesus reminds us that he's worth every sacrifice that we're going to experience along the way. He says in Matthew 19, 28 through 30, that everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life, right? That's the promise of God to us, that as we take these major leaps of faith, steps of faith, jump out into the dark, trusting God with the really hard and difficult things in our lives. God meets us with life, not only here and now, but life in the age to come. And so based on Abraham's faith and his provision of his sacrifice, God reaffirms all his promises to Abraham and adds still more. So in verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And so once again, God renews his promise to bless him and multiply his offspring through Isaac, that his descendants would be as vast as the sand of the seashore. God promises him victory over his enemies, a new promise that he'd possess the gates of his enemies. And God renews his promise to bless all the nations of the earth through his descendants because Abraham is on this journey of faith, right? He becomes a part of God's blessing to the nations, part of God's blessing to the world. And we are recipients of those blessings through Jesus and get to pass along those blessings to the people we meet. We are blessed to be a blessing, right? We've been accepted, welcomed into God's family, right? Forgiven all of our sins, uh, given grace upon grace, be a part of this new community. We're a part of God's mission in the world, bringing God's love and God's justice to bear on all the brokenness around us. That, that's the inheritance we get as children of Abraham, children of faith, to be a part of this same faith journey, this same faith story, and this same great story of blessing. And so I uh, just ask you this morning, how firm of a handle do you have on God's faithfulness this morning? Uh, that God is with us, that God is for us as we see in Abraham's life and in his journey. How confident are you that God has provided all that we need in Jesus, right? How deeply have you tapped into the resources of God's grace for you in Christ, right? Are you prepared for this kind of test in your life? Or maybe, ready or not, you're in that test right now, right? God has, has taken something that you really love or withheld something that you really uh, would love to have. And, and here we are, right, trying to figure out how do we live by faith? How do we walk by faith? Is, is Jesus enough for me in this circumstance, in this situation? What would it look like to seek God for his provision, even this morning? Uh, to be crying out to God to meet you in the midst of that test. And what would it look like to prepare for this kind of test, right? How do you prepare for this kind of graduate-level test in the school of the faith? Are there habits in your life that need to be developed, ways for you to remember and focus on the promises of God, the goodness of God? Uh, are there people that you need to have in your life that when you forget are going to remind you of the promises of God, the goodness of God, the love of God in your life? 
Or maybe you're not at a great test of faith this morning. Maybe you're like, man, God has blessed me with so much. How can I be a blessing, right? What steps of faith do you have maybe in your life to be a blessing with all the things that God has given you, all the resources God has shared? I mean, here in West Michigan, I mean, living in the life we live in this American economy that we live in with so much abundance, so much to share, uh, maybe it's just an opportunity to be a blessing this morning to those around us, be a conduit of blessing to those around us. Maybe that's our next move, right, of faith. How do, we, how do we be a blessing? We've been blessed. How can we be a blessing this week? I want to close with uh, one final illustration from C.S. Lewis, another one of those uh, C.S. Lewis Sundays. Sorry, guys. You know, I can't get enough of C.S. Lewis, uh, but I hope it gives you a compelling picture that kind of puts a final touch on this faith uh, journey, because I just feel like we, we need a picture, right, for what God is doing in our lives to, to keep drawing us forward in this journey of faith, to keep calling us out into the next steps of faith. And here's the picture Lewis draws. It's one of my favorite. He says, he says imagine yourself as living in a house. God comes to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. And you knew those jobs needed to be done, so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. It does not seem to be making any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation that he's building quite a different house from the house you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. If you will let him, he will make the feeblest and filthy of us into a god or goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy, joy, and wisdom, and love as we can cannot now imagine a bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power, delight, and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. I love that vision, right? The the vision here of a life that God is calling us to, what God wants to do in our lives. It's going to be painful. It's going to be difficult, but but God won't settle for anything less than that. It's the same with Abraham, right? Abraham could have settled for, hey, I just want a quiet house in Canaan and all, maybe a kid or something. God's like, no, I want to bless you and make you a blessing to all the families there. That's the kind of thing that God wants to do in our lives, in our community, to be conduits of blessing to the world. And my heart, my heart, my prayer for this series is that would give us a little bit of vision of what we're a part of as the family of God, as the people of God on mission here in our city. And my prayer also would be that we'd be a church where people are prepared, we're trained, we're equipped for these difficult moments of faith when these ultimate tests come along, uh, that the discipleship here would be deep enough that you'd actually be able to stand in those moments of faith. So let me pray that God might be doing that here among us, and then we'll get some time to spend some time around the Lord's table being pointed right back to that incredible love that we talked about. 
Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for Abraham and his great journey of faith. And uh, we know from Galatians 5 that we're children of Abraham. If we're children of faith, we're on this same faith journey, getting to bring God's blessings to the nations. God, would you raise our eyes to the vision that you have for us to be a blessing? God, would you remind us of your great love for us here, even in the death of your son, your only son? Um, would you make us a people, God, animated by grace and by um, your love, God? And would it make a difference here in our city and ultimately outwards to the nations? And would you get all the glory? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.